Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal Rx. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years' experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different because late last year, we said goodbye to American master herbalist Stephen Booner, who passed away in December after generously dedicating his life to communicating the intelligence of nature and of plants. We know he was a lifeline for many who were unwell, and his books on herbal antibiotics, herbal antivirals, and Lyme disease were particularly influential to us at Optimal Rx. We are so grateful for Stephen's legacy, and we'll be paying tribute to him by sharing excerpts from some of the lectures he recorded for us in 2015 and 2016. Today's recording is centered around the topic of herbal antibiotics or antibacterials, but before we share some of his incredible wisdom with you, Optimal Rx's director, Jill Oborn, will say a few words about Stephen's impact on her. I remember clearly my excitement when I was browsing a bookshop back around 2012 and saw the book Herbal Antibiotics by Stephen Booner. I picked it up straight away, took it to the cash register. It was a Friday night. I took the book home and read it over the weekend. It was full of herbal brain food. Over the next couple of years, herbal antivirals and healing lime were released and I devoured them as well. As a result, I determined then and there that Optimal would get a lot of the unique herbs that Stephen had detailed. Barry and I had the honour of travelling to the USA and interviewing Stephen on two occasions in 2014 and 2015. Meeting a person who was so meticulous in his research, working in fields no one else was, filled me with admiration and awe. On a world scale, he is the leader with his contributions in the field of herbalism. Herbalists worldwide will be forever in his debt. Well, I'm Stephen Buhner, and I've been corralled into doing a talk here about herbal antibiotics and resistant bacteria, and maybe a little bit about viruses and emerging infections. And I've been writing and studying herbal medicine for 25, 30 years now. I've got about 20 books out and uh, more to come undoubtedly since it's a, uh, an addiction to write. But I love herbs. I love herbal medicine. I got into it because of my great-grandfather, who was primarily a botanic physician who began practice in 1911 and rural Indiana, and that's the kind of doctor I wanted to be. And of course, there wasn't a place for that kind of doctor anymore in the United States, so I just had to kind of find my own way into the community of people doing herbal medicine, and it's a wonderful community, I think. I got fascinated by resistant bacteria about 25 years ago, and because it was clear to me that as resistant bacteria get more pervasive, that pharmaceuticals are going to work more and more poorly as time goes on. Resistant bacteria have this horrible habit of exponentially learning, and 
they teach all of their friends. So it's one of the great problems facing us as a species, and it's one of the things that herbal medicine is most elegant in addressing. So I'll talk about that for a while. Now, bacteria are about four billion years old. They're incredibly smart. A lot smarter than human beings, though many scientists don't like to acknowledge that. Most bacterial researchers do. They're really clear that bacteria are highly sentient, highly intelligent, some of the most capable tool makers on the planet. And by tools, I mean by they can change their genome structure virtually at will. They can create alterations in their body physiology to make it impossible for antibiotics to affect them. They have extremely sophisticated language. Um, they communicate amongst themselves quite elegantly. They build cities, which we call biofilms. They even actually have been found to create electrical insulated cables to warm their cities that look virtually identical to our own. Um, they care for their offspring. Um, cheater cells are suppressed, meaning that they prosecute the bankers even when we won't. And so they're, they're really quite remarkable. All of the different um, genera of bacteria talk with each other. And one of the primary things they share with each other is how to resist antibiotics. We live in a time that for the first time in the history of this planet, trillions and trillions of pounds of artificial antibiotics are being put into the world ecosystem. Most people don't know that these are not biodegradable. Um, they, once they get into the soil and the water, they continue to affect all life forms um, pretty much forever. So the bacteria had to develop resistance. Bacteria are the fundamental underpinnings of life on Earth. They're very important. They, as Lynn Margolis, the great bacteriologist and microbial researcher put it, she said, they have a lot better things to do than to destroy our bodies while we're inside of them, to eat our food before we can. You know, they're doing a lot of other things. Only some of them affect us, but we've created these, this bacterial assault that is literally unknown in recorded biologic history. And it's stimulated changes in the bacterial underpinnings of the planet that are virtually unique in the history of Earth. So what happened is all of the bacteria began to develop resistance. And every bacterial researcher on Earth has said, it is naive to think we can win. We are facing the threat of epidemic diseases more virulent than human beings have ever known before because of these stimulated changes that our pharmaceutical technology has caused. The first thing we have to know is bacteria, or bacteria are highly intelligent and we have to treat them that way. And we have to understand that when they go into a human body, they're entering a very unique ecological system. We're kind of a microcosm of the larger macrocosm of Earth. Each body responds to the bacteria slightly differently depending upon our immune function, our, our previous or current state of health. And so then you have to understand what a pharmaceutical is. Pharmaceuticals are 
usually just a single molecular compound, a silver bullet they think of them as. And when that comes toward a bacteria, it's pretty easy for the bacteria to just learn how to step out of the way. You know, so they create a lot of different strategies to deal with pharmaceuticals. When a pharmaceutical touches them and it is taken into their body, they create what is known as efflux pumps, which pumps the bacteria out of their body as fast as it comes in. They change their genomic structure so they'll remain unaffected by the bacteria. They change their physical form so that the organ inside the cell that is affected by the antibacterial substance um, is no longer affected by it. They have many, many, many different mechanisms for doing this. With a plant, it's a much different circumstance. Plants are made up of hundreds of compounds and it's much harder for bacteria to create resistance to them. Plus, you have to understand plants are living medicines. Plants have been around depending on what kind, between about 140 million and 700 million years. They're living organisms, so when a bacteria infects a plant, what happens is the plant creates a response to the bacteria. They can't go to the doctor, they can't go to the hospital, they can't get drugs from outside themselves exactly, so they create their own chemical response to the bacteria. They're the best chemists on the planet, we are nothing compared to them in terms of our skill level. So they analyze the bacteria that's infecting them and they create a response which kills the bacteria. If the bacteria then learn how to be resistant to that, then the plant creates responses to the resistance so that, for instance, with berberine containing plants like golden seal, they also have within them efflux pump inhibitors which stop the bacteria from using efflux pumps. They have many, many, many other compounds to deal with whatever the bacteria do in response and they're always creating new ones just as the bacteria. So the plants we use today are not the same as the plants that our ancestors used a hundred years ago, even if we call both of them golden seal. The plants 50 years from now will not be the same as the ones we use now because they're constantly evolving in response. They're living medicines. They're highly biodegradable, which pharmaceuticals are not. They're easy to grow. They're inexpensive. They're sustainable all the way around. They're better and they're much more sophisticated. So when I first wrote about antibiotic resistant bacteria about 15 years ago, I think there were about 12 resistant bacteria I was looking at, and now there's about 24. So there's more and more of them emerging all of the time. The bacteria are developing resistance. It took them decades originally, then it took them years. Now it takes them about six months to develop resistance to any new antibiotic that's coming up and being used. All herbalists need to know about this. It's one of the greatest things we can do is learn how to use antibacterial plants to help people. And I've been working with them for now 20, 25 years um, and doing so quite successfully. So this is just some of the stuff I've learned, a good place to start. My book, the second edition of Herbal Antibiotics goes into this in depth. There'll be more information in there than you ever wanted to know. And there's about 2,500 journal citations about all of this for 
the reductive skeptics amongst you who want to know where all this information came from. So, I, I break up antibiotics um, plants into two categories. Um, the first category is the systemic antibiotics. And to get to a systemic antibacterial plant, I mean, the thing is, yeah, for instance, golden seal has berberine in it. Berberine is a highly antibacterial substance, very broad spectrum, but it isn't very systemic. When you take it internally, it isn't disseminated in the bloodstream throughout the body very well at all. It won't, very much of it will pass, not very much of it will pass through the GI tract membrane. So the trick was to find antibacterial plants that were broad spectrum, that were highly active, and that would move into the bloodstream so they would get to every organ in the body. And the way I got to that was looking at plants that were good for malaria. There's a lot of traditional plants used for malaria. And the neat thing about that is to successfully treat malaria, the herbs have to get into the bloodstream and circulate broadly that way. So that's how I began to find the ones that were systemic. Then I needed to find the ones that were highly active. So I looked at a number of different things. I looked at traditional use of these plants over thousands of years. I looked at what contemporary herbalists in every country on earth that use them were doing with them. I looked at all of the peer review studies from every country that was doing work on them on every continent, and then I sort of collated all the information to find the strongest ones. And the one that I fell in love with the most that I began using earliest was a plant called uh, Cryptolepis sanguinolenta. There's another one, Buchanii, that is common in Asia that is um, probably as good. It's not the research base on it isn't as deep. Um, Cryptolepis sanguinolenta, people began to get into that because um, they were looking for herbs on the African continent to treat malaria. And they found two very good ones up front, Artemisia annua, which I'll talk about a bit later, and Cryptolepis sanguinolenta. Cryptolepis is an amazing herb in that it's also a broad spectrum antibacterial. It's good for both gram-negative and gram-positive bacteria. So I have a tiny uh, uh, bit of information about that here. Gram-positive bacteria, they're, they're called that because they take a stain named after this guy named Gram, as they invariably name stuff after themselves. And um, one takes a stain, one doesn't. The gram-positive bacteria, they basically, they just have a thicker cell wall. Gram-negative bacteria have a double cell wall with kind of a moat, so to speak, in between. And so they're a bit harder to treat because the substances have to get through two cell walls before they make it to the interior of the bacteria. The gram-positive, the wall's just much thicker, but they can only have to go through one wall. Probably the most famous gram-positive bacteria that people have heard of is Staph or Staphylococcus. 
uh, multiple resistant Staphylococcus, or MRSA as it's sometimes called, is one of the most difficult emerging um, bacterial pathogens. It used to be just concentrated in hospitals, and you need to understand about hospitals and nursing homes, prisons, daycare centers, any place where human beings are warehoused like that, the bacteria begin to share quite a bit, especially in hospitals and prisons. And you get in a hospital all of the really um, intense human infectious bacteria in one location, and they all begin sharing um, resistance information with each other quite rapidly. So what you got was these resistant organisms emerging in a hospital environment and that's for a while where they were pretty much contained and I think I saw the first emergence of MRSA generally in the population about 1995 or so and what happens with people is that they go in for quite often a routine treatment and sometimes just an injection, sometimes a small incision of some sort, and they'll become infected in the hospital with MRSA. They'll go back out and it'll begin to spread quite a bit. And they'll go through multiple regimens of antibiotic treatment, none of which will work. And then the physicians will basically just abandon them at that point, And the people will have no recourse. And those are the people I began seeing about 20 years ago in my own practice. So the first herb I used with them was Cryptolepis sanguinolenta, and it's an herb that it's a, actually kind of an invasive weedy botanical that's common through the mid-level of Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, and through there. Um, it's got a brilliant yellow root, quite like the berberine plants, though it has no berberine in it. And interestingly enough, it's non-toxic, even in the largest doses. I've never seen a report of side effects in the literature. I've never had a report of a side effect from anybody taking it. Um, people in Africa take it routinely every day as a tea for years to prevent malarial infections. So it's a tremendously safe herb, quite bitter, of course, as many herbs are. Um, I use it as a tincture. The dosage range for people that have sort of um, just uh, a resistant staph that is there but not massively debilitating is usually a teaspoon of the tincture three to six times a day, usually for um, about 60 to 90 days, and that'll usually clear it up. People that have a really, really difficult acute form of it, and it's getting quite dangerous, the dosage range I use is a tablespoon six times a day, I've never had it fail for anybody that's used it. Um, very safe, very effective work. Now another great systemic antibacterial plant is Ceta. Ceta acuta, there's a number that are extremely good, Ceta rhombifolia. There's four or five in the Ceta family that are completely excellent. It's the above ground plant that's used as a tincture and Ceta is one of the more remarkable systemic antibacterials, of course, it's extremely good for malaria, it's extremely good for staph, but it's also a broad-spectrum antibacterial for both gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria. Same kind of dosage range, 
in general as the cryptolepis with a caveat. Ceta is an unusual herb in that there's individual dosage responses that I've never really seen um, with any other herb quite like this. Um, it's really best to start really slow with this particular herb and then work up. I've seen people take just a few drops three times a day and the side effects of it seem to be that it will then recreate the symptoms of the diseases people are dealing with. Like it's pretty good, it's a pretty good systemic antibacterial for stealth pathogens like Babesia for instance, which is a protozoa similar to malaria um, that hides inside red blood cells and then sequesters itself in various parts of the liver and the spleen. And the thing is that some people can do very large doses of CETA, other people can do just tiny drops and it'll begin to recreate the symptoms that are there. And uh, it's all, I've only been working with this herb for about three years now, so I'm still on the learning curve with it. Um, but the other really fascinating thing about CETA is that it, it's very similar, like hawthorn, for instance, is a tonic herb for the heart. Milk thistle seed is a tonic herb for the liver. CETA is a tonic herb for red blood cells, and it's absolutely phenomenal for that. It's highly protective of red blood cells from any kind of invasive pathogen. They've done some great um, in vivo work and in some clinical work as well with people that have been bitten by snakes where the toxin destroys red blood cells, and then using CETA will completely protect the red blood cells from destruction by those snake toxins. So it's really effective, for instance, with um, sickle cell anemia in helping correct the problems in red blood cells. In any kind of anemia, especially during cancer or anything like that, CETA will regenerate the production of red blood cells extremely rapidly. It's absolutely phenomenal for that. And I've seen it work in all different kinds of cases, no matter what the source of the anemia is. So I'm very fond of this particular plant, especially because it's an invasive botanical. Um, wherever it gets started, if the climate is proper, if it's warm enough, it'll start to become invasive, which upsets a lot of people. I particularly love invasive plants because that's one of the real signs that their chemistry is so potent. And another amazing thing about invasive botanicals is they tend to begin moving into eco-ranges where they are needed, when they are needed. Now, nobody can really quite explain this, though Hippocrates and herbalist Paracelsus, everybody since them, they've remarked on that dynamic that herbs tend to locate in places where they are needed. So the invasive botanicals, it's always important to look at what they're doing, why they're there, to really ask that question, not just get into deciding we have to eradicate them because they're moving into our formerly pristine, you know, phyto uh, environment. Um, so once CETA gets started, you really can't get rid of it, which is great because you've got this major antibacterial plant that's emerging over and over and over and over again. 
and it's absolutely phenomenal. Now sometimes people will get anemia and they'll take CETA for instance for a while, the anemia will go away and then they'll stop taking it and the anemia will come back. The thing is you can take CETA in small doses over a long period of time. The plant's a traditional pot herb through much of South America and Africa. It's got 16 to 25 percent protein in it, very much like nettles. And so it's very, very good. It's actually pretty tasty, as a matter of fact. So the thing about it's very common with a lot of people that when they're suffering from some condition, they'll get better and then they'll stop taking the herbs, and then they'll relapse, they'll take them again, they'll get better, they'll stop taking them and relapse. So it's a matter of figuring out the kind of dose that you need to take. So you start slow and work up. And then when you get better, it's much better to like decrease slowly. And then if the symptoms begin to come back, then you sort of sit at that level for a while and stay there. The seed is often good in small doses, maybe 10 drops three times a day over the long term. If you're not having any of the that particularly weird side effect that people get where it increases symptoms when you take too large of a dose, if that happens, what we do is we just back off slowly to just before where those symptoms begin to show up again, and that's the dose that you need to take. So I suppose I need to talk a little bit about doses. Most people won't tell you this, but it's all made up. We've made all of this up, okay? So some people I've seen six foot five guys, 260 pounds, that can only take a few drops of an herbal tincture three times a day. And I've seen five foot one inch women, 85 pounds, that can take tablespoons all day long. The thing is that, once again, there's a unique ecology. Every body is a unique ecosystem. And when you put the plant into that ecosystem, it's going to have a certain kind of impact. That's one of the reasons this is an art, not a science. Science has its place, but this healing is an art form, not a reductive science. So you need to find out what the dosage range is for each individual person. So basically in my books, when I suggest a dosage range, that's just a place to start. So you begin with that and then you see what happens to the people as they take it and then you have to adjust it for their exact ecosystem. So don't be surprised if, I suppose about 1% of the people that we see can only take drops at a time. Other people it's going in some sort of a range between maybe um, a half a teaspoon to a teaspoon three to six times a day depending upon the kind of condition they're dealing with and the particular herb that we're using. Um, the people in Asia, the Chinese are used to much larger dosages than the people in the West. It's not uncommon to see people in China use 6 to 30 grams, which is 30 grams is a little bit over an ounce of herb as a dosage regimen per day. In the United States, we've been really trained to be afraid of dosages, trained to be afraid of plants, even though they're extremely benevolent uh, medicines. 
So our dosages here in the States tend to be kind of wimpy, really um, 20 to 60 drops at a time. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. So you have to be unafraid to find what the real dosage range is for a plant and for the people you're using. That's why I always suggest doing provings on yourself if you're going to be using an herb. One of the great ways to find out about that is uh, if you're treating prostate trouble because nobody in their right mind is ever, ever going to take salt palmetto tincture unless you hold them down and force them to because it tastes exactly like fetid soap. So therefore, you need to taste these herbs and see how it works in your own body and then you'll find out interesting things that if you combine lots of licorice with lots of black cohosh in a man, you're going to start getting breast enlargement, which is very uncomfortable as I can speak from personal experience. So. Now, cedar is an extremely good plant, as I mentioned, and it's invasive. So I always suggest to people that they get some of these invasive plant seeds and without telling any of their neighbors, they plant them in their yards so they'll have this medicine forever and then it'll spread around the neighborhood. Another really good invasive plant is Biden's. Now, Biden's isn't well known in the West. Oddly enough, a number of these herbs are not well known in the Western herbal tradition. Not because they aren't around, it's just because after World War II, the whole sort of Western herbal tradition died out as medicine moved really intently into pharmaceuticals. And in consequence, when the whole herbal renaissance started again in the 60s and 70s and the early 80s, we all went back to 1880 and began looking at the eclectics and what they did. And they did some absolutely magnificent stuff. John Uri Lloyd was a tremendous researcher and King's Herbal or King's American Dispensatory was an absolutely phenomenal resource. We had a number of other things that were sort of intermediate texts like the work of John Christopher, for instance, with cayenne. And we used that and then so slowly we began um, doing some more original work, but the world's really moved on and we tended to be stuck in a lot of herbs that were old and we hadn't been looking around us for new things, a lot of which happened to be growing in our yards, like Biden's. Now Biden's is also known as beggar ticks and a whole lot of other names that are much less complimentary than that. So if you've ever walked through a field filled with Bidens and seed, you'll know that you've got about four million of them stuck in your clothes, especially your socks and your pant legs. They're very difficult to remove. Now, Bidens is one of the great overlooked herbs in the Western herbal tradition. Okay, it's not as strong as Ceta or Cryptolepis, so the dosage range has to be higher. I think Biden's Pelosa is probably the strongest of the group, but there's probably eight or ten, which I list in the book, uh, Herbal Antibiotics, that are usable. I tend to use Biden's Panada because it grows all around my house here, um, but Pelosa is very common many places, and it is especially good for any kind of infection in a mucous membrane system. Okay, so if you've had 
let's say a urinary tract infection and you get well, then you relapse, you get well, then you relapse. Biden's is the absolute perfect herb to use for that. It's effective against a wide range of resistant bacterial organisms, both gram-positive and gram-negative. It actually tastes quite nice. I tend to use fairly large doses of this, uh, tablespoons six times a day. It's a benevolent herb. It's also a pot herb many people use. Very few side effects from it, if any. Um, and by the way, when I go through in my books about this, I look at every known herb-drug interaction I can find. I look at all of the side effects that I can possibly find. If it's in the literature anywhere, it's going to be listed there. So I always recommend that people look at that before they get too deep into it. Now Artemisia annua is also a really good herb to work with. It's primarily used for malaria. It was actually the way it sort of came to the notice of the Western nations was really from Mao and uh, the Chinese in that during the Vietnam War, the North Vietnamese were suffering a lot of malaria and they couldn't get pharmaceuticals. And they did a lot of great research and found that Artemisia annua was extremely excellent for treating resistant malarial infections. Now, of course, the Western countries turned that into an isolated pharmaceutical constituent called artemisinin. It's pretty effective, but of course then the malarial parasites, which are primarily a protozoa, not a bacteria, they've developed a great deal of resistance to artemisinin at this point. The Artemisia annua plant itself, however, can be used directly, and it's really the top two-thirds of the fresh plant and flower that has the most artemisinin content in it. The traditional way of, of using it is to just put a great big amount of that, um, you know, a couple of ounces of it in uh, two quarts of water, of hot water, let it steep overnight, and then the next morning you actually wring out the plant just like a washcloth and drink that two quarts over every day um, and do that repeated every day for seven to 10 days, and that's usually effective enough to treat any kind of malarial infection. And then if it hasn't quite taken care of it, in two weeks you repeat it again, and that usually works fine. It's also quite a nice invasive plant once you get it started. The Artemises, you can't get rid of them. Once they get growing, they're very strong plants to use. Now, one of the important things to keep in mind with, with a lot of these infections that it's really important to support both the liver and the spleen. A lot of people don't think about supporting the spleen. I'm not really sure why. The spleen is the source of a lot of the white blood cells that the immune system generates to deal with bacterial infections or viral infections of many different sorts. In a lot of instances, the spleen will begin to get enlarged and get really congested. The lymph nodes will get congested because the old white blood cells, the dead bacteria, are put into the lymph system for disposal. The lymph will get really clogged up. So the more that you can support the spleen, 
that you can in the lymph system to help it process that stuff out, the much better the system is going to work, the faster you're going to get well, and the less problems you're going to have um, with your spleen, for instance. Now, the main herb I've used for that, which is a North American plant, which has been planted all around the world as an ornamental, is ceanothus, or red root. And the root is best if it's harvested in the fall or the early winter after a really good frost. The root will turn a, a more brilliant red color. Um, the root itself will have this sort of pink tinge that runs through the whole root, which is normally white the rest of the year. And it makes the most marvelous sort of brilliant red, darkish red tincture, actually kind of the color of blood. Um, which is an interesting sort of doctrine of signature on this. I love that plant. I've used it for many, many, many years. For colds and flu, I often used a combination of echinacea and gustifolia, red root and licorice, um, and it would just knock out colds and flu very rapidly if you took it in fairly large doses early on during the infection. Now, the thing about red root is it's a coag blood coagulant. So, there's some diseases like uh, Babesia, when it infects the human being, it tends to cause blood coagulation. So the absolute best substitute to support the spleen is Dan Shen, um, red sage. Um, it's a Chinese herb, but also, interestingly enough, its root is bright red and it makes the most marvelous red tincture, almost exactly the same color as the red root tincture. Um, the doses on it can be massively large. On red root, I tend to stop about uh, at a teaspoon six times a day. Danshin, you can go much higher. For instance, some diseases cause a tremendous amount of pain that is difficult to deal with, and you can use Danshin a tablespoon every hour to help reduce that. It's extremely good. I haven't found any side effects from it. Um, it's an easy herb to grow, very prolific, um, and it's just one of my favorite herbs for supporting the spleen. Both red root and danshin do have some liver protective dynamics. They're fairly good for that, but especially if combined with milk thistle seed, um, especially if it's a standardized in this particular instance to get the particular constituents that protect the liver up to high enough of a, of a quantity, they're extremely good for that. Um, they'll reduce high liver enzyme levels, they'll reduce the inflammation in the spleen and the liver will both come down considerably. Using those regularly, they're extremely reliable, very few side effects from them. I like them a lot. Now another thing that I tend to add to a lot of these formulations are plant synergists. The Chinese have known about this, the Ayurvedic practitioners have known about synergists for a long time. We in the West are extremely weak with plant synergists. Licorice is probably the best known, but we tend to think of it as more of an antiviral or you know, a general sort of mucilaginous type of plant. Um, and it's very good for both of those things, but it also is an extremely potent synergist, as well as having a decent antibacterial and antiviral range. 
So when you add licorice to a lot of these different formulations, it actually potentiates the action of these plants tremendously. Um, they found even with pharmaceuticals that are ineffective because of resistant bacteria, that taking them with synergists like licorice will potentiate the action of the pharmaceutical. So I particularly like licorice um, as an adjunct. Of course, one of the side effects of a lot of licorice use is um, it, it plays havoc with potassium levels in the body. It can raise blood pressure extremely high. So I look at it as an herb to take um, for acute kind of circumstances, but not for long-term use. I tend to not use it longer than about 30 to 90 days, um, depending upon whatever it is I'm dealing with without a break. Um, another great synergist is ginger. Um, ginger is a potently antiviral herb, which I'll talk about later. But the neat thing about ginger is that there's a thing called uh, a glycoprotein inhibitor in the um, GI tract, which stops the movement of um, substances across the GI tract membrane into the bloodstream. Ginger inhibits that um, dynamic and it allows more substances into the bloodstream as well as it dilates the blood vessels and stimulates circulation so you get a lot more potent movement around the body as well as it facilitates the movement of substances past the blood-brain barrier into the brain which really helps there and those are both really good synergists to use. Now there's a lot of really great topical antibacterial herbs and I think one of the most potent of all is honey. The fascinating thing about honey is a lot of doctors in the Western world, they don't like to use it because it's like that's what you know people in the Middle Ages used. It's like peasant medicine. But the thing is that it is one of the most fantastic things to use for antibiotic resistant infections of the skin. Now, it's actually part of general practice medicine in the UK, and they're one of the first major countries in the Western world that are using it. Of course, the pharmaceutical companies got involved and they said, well, yes, but you have to use the meta honey because it's the best kind. Of course, it costs 20 times as much, but you know, this is the one that we can use in the hospitals. The thing is, the trick for this is to use any kind of wildflower honey, raw wildflower honey. That's the kind to use. And it will work just as good as Meta Honey or any other kind that a pharmaceutical company's creating. Now they've tested these and honey is active against every known resistant bacteria that exists. A lot of people go into the hospital and they'll have some sort of a surgery and what they'll get is they'll get an infection in that surgical incision that just will not respond to antibiotics no matter what. And the thing they've begun to do is to spread honey on that and you just keep it covered with gauze, change it two or three times a day. It's effective. I've used it many, many times myself. Um, over and over again, I've never had it fail. It's extremely good for serious burns or serious ulcerations, even to the bone. 
Um, with burns, one of the problems is the protective layer of skin is removed, plus all of the coevolutionary bacteria that are on our skin are lost. And quite often what you get is a staphylococcus infection of the skin that's very dangerous. This was actually the first thing that was ever treated with penicillin, which showed how effective pharmaceuticals could be to save burn victims. But the interesting thing is if you put honey on there, it stops the infection, but also what it does is it keeps the skin moist, which is a real problem in serious burns. You just use it like you would any other kind of salve that you're putting on. You just change the, the bandage two to three, sometimes four times a day, depending upon how serious the burns are. With ulceration, even all the way to the bone, this is a very common peasant medicine in Mexico and South America. They'll put honey on there and cover it and then change the bandage several times a day. You'll get complete regeneration of the skin and the muscle tissue with very little scarring, very little loss of muscle tissue without any infection. It's absolutely phenomenal. Now, berberine plants such as golden seal, barberry, Oregon grape root, things like that. Berberine is a very, very potent antibacterial substance. Many plants around the world contain it. Um, the thing is, berberine's not very systemic. So it's good for places it can touch. And so the two best places like that really are the skin and the GI tract. So if you get a systemic infection, or uh, sorry, an infection in the GI tract, like Shigella or Salmonella, E. coli, that um, is causing that kind of bloody diarrhea. The berberine plants are specific for that. They're extremely good. They can be taken in moderately high dosages. I tend to use them about a tablespoon um, three to six times a day for that. I usually mix them with some other things that are good for the GI tract like licorice or marshmallow, but it'll stop the bloody diarrhea, especially if you add in something like blackberry root, which is really a good thing to stop that kind of uh, uh, discharge from the GI tract. With children that get those kind of infections from bad food, especially the, the really nasty kind of E. coli that can cause that kind of problem, I've never had these fail either. They're extremely effective. With infected wounds on the skin, um, I usually make a wound powder. Um, I make it out of um, a berberine plant, usually usnea, um, which is also a, a very good antibacterial plant. It's a lichen. Um, and I'll add whatever other things I want to add into that, usually some sort of uh, astringent herb, usually a wild geranium root, but there's many other things. Oak bark is good. And then I powder these things absolutely as finely as I can um, usually in a Vitamix because it's indestructible. It can even grind up two by fours quite nicely as the Vitamix instructional video will show you. And also then I take that and I put it in a, a nut grinder and grind it down as fine as flour and then I sift it through a very fine sieve so you'll get this very fine flour-like substance that I just pack the wound with. And it's much better on a seeping wound than honey is because it'll dry it out, it's very antibacterial, it'll stop all of the bleeding, and then later I might switch to honey after it's not so much of a seeping wound, but never had 
at fail, I actually shot a 16-penny nail through this joint accidentally. One day it was sticking out like this. It actually had nailed my hand to a 2x4. I was using a nail gun at the time and it misfired. Unfortunately, my hammer was across the room, so I had to get somebody to come bring it to me so I could pull my finger out of the 2x4. And then I just coated this with an antibacterial tincture, pulled the nail out, and then I packed it with um, that exact wound powder mix and then used honey thereafter and worked fine. I had a friend who did the same thing and went to the hospital. $20,000 later, he also had a finger that worked. So this uh, it's very, very effective and I've never had it fail in practice. Candida is also an emerging problem. It's one of the fungal infections that is getting more and more resistant to pharmaceuticals all of the time. Very easy to treat with herbs. Um, probably the easiest herbs to get to treat it with are any of the berberine plants. Um, a lot of times with candida infections, it's really into the GI tract. Um, sometimes you'll get it systemic and sometimes you get it in the urinary tract. Those are kind of the three major areas where it will locate itself. So you can really deal with all of those with a really nice combination of any kind of a berberine plant, um, golden seal, barberry, um, any of those like that. And like you get about a half a teaspoon three times a day for that. If it's really bad, maybe six times a day. Um, for the systemic, you can add in CETA, which is quite effective against candida. And then for the UTI, the urinary tract infection, you can add in juniper berry. So if you make a combination of all three of those things and then you use it over time, usually I'm finding most of these things 30 to 90 days for most of the resistant microbial pathogens like this. It'll tend to clear it up and then you can repeat it again if you need to after that. Now if you get a candida infection up in the vaginal passages, which is quite common, it's you can use the systemic herbs like cedar, which will really help, but also a douche with that mixture, like with a juniper berry and especially a berberine plant works extremely well for that. And I personally have not had much experience myself with douching, but you know, and so I always tend to fumble when I get in this area because I can never remember. It's just not a personal experience thing, but basically, since these things are usually used as tinctures, they can kind of sting a bit. So often douching is with a certain amount of water. Usually I believe a pint, I'm guessing here. And you can usually just add the tinctures to that, heat them up until the alcohol then evaporates and then douche with that. And normally I just, since it's usually women doing it and they usually know about douching, I just tell them to douche with this. And they usually use like a half an ounce of the berberine. Usnea is also really good to add. Half an ounce of usnea tincture. And you can add just, you know, to this, once you heat it up in a pint of water, you can add a few drops of juniper berry essential oil. 
and it will work just famously for candida infections of the vaginal tract. Now urinary tract infections are extremely common and there's a lot of resistant bacteria that are causing them, whether it's E. coli or staph, there's just a wide, wide variety of bacteria that are infecting the urinary tract systems anymore. Now, I've found juniper berry to be the most effective thing for that. You can add in a number of other herbs. There's always a little bit of golden seal that makes it past the GI tract membrane into circulation, which will tend to be excreted either through the lungs or the urinary tract. It can be helpful. Cryptolepis will be helpful that way. Ceta can be helpful. But really, juniper berry, um, essential oil, or the tincture itself, both are, are so completely effective for that. Um, with the juniper berry tincture is what I tend to use mostly. Um, I usually use 10 to 30 drops, depending upon how severe the infection is, usually about three times a day. There's some really interesting um, concerns about using juniper berry tincture, that it can cause kidney damage or it shouldn't be used during active kidney infections. The thing is, this whole thing came from one document uh, published about 1910 that showed that dogs had a negative reaction to it. It's not really accurate. The eclectic medical um, herbalists in the 1880s through about 1910, they used it for active kidney infections to actually treat that. So that's not a concern for me. I've never seen any side effects from use. A lot of people will start off with uva ursi for urinary tract infection. It's pretty good except for the resistant infections don't really respond well to it. You can start that way. If you've got a lot of irritation, you can add some marshmallow root tincture, some licorice root tincture, which will help. But the juniper berry tincture, I've never found to fail. It's really, really effective in practice.